This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. mentioned earlier, and Kristen did as well, we are continuing on in our journey through the book of Acts. If you're newer around here and uh, not familiar with our journey that we've been on, we've, uh, for the last year and a half almost, starting in September 2021, started uh, working through this incredible book, the book of Acts, as a way to kind of help us as a church um, re-engage with the purpose and the mission of the church, kind of post-COVID, as we kind of came out of the fog of the pandemic, a lot of us were kind of wondering, what's the point of church? Like, why bother being a part of a church family? Why engage with a local church at all? And so, to help answer those questions, we've been working through this book. The book of Acts, which tells the story of the very first church, and looking at it to learn uh, what it is that the church exists to do and to be in the world. And uh, back in November, when we last looked at the book of Acts, we looked at the first part of the Apostle Paul's first missionary trip. And we're picking things up now uh, in that missionary trip, looking at the rest of his missionary trip as Paul preaches his first sermon, the first recorded sermon we have from the Apostle Paul. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to work through some of that passage that Laura just read for us in Acts 13. We're going to start a few verses prior to what she read from, starting in verse 13 of chapter 13. Acts 13, verse 13, where before Paul preaches this epic sermon, his first recorded sermon, we read this. Paul and his companions, who was Barnabas, the missionary, and John uh, Mark, the assistant, they left Pathos by ship for Pamphylia, landing in the port town of Persia, which is in Asia Minor. We're now heading into the Apostle Paul's home territory, where he was from. Verse 13 still. There, John Mark left them and returned to Israel. He left them. He didn't go with Paul and Barnabas. He ditched them. Now, this is just a small little snippet of information that Luke, the author of Acts, gives us. But the question here we should ask is, why did John Mark leave? This actually proves to be a pretty significant point in the story of Paul and Barnabas' relationship a little, a little bit later on in Acts 15. It leads to a conflict. So why is it that John Mark left them? Well, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. We just know it ends up being a big deal later on in the story. Some have speculated that John Mark, he couldn't handle the heat of missionary work. That as they were traveling through the mountains and the rough terrain and roughing it, sleeping out in the wilderness, uh, he couldn't handle it. He came from a wealthy home, and so the idea of having to rough it out just wasn't his thing. Some have said that maybe that was the reason he ditched them. Others have said that maybe he missed his mummy. <laughs> his mom was wealthy, a wealthy widow, it's believed. In fact, the early church met in Mary's home. That was his mother's name in the book of Acts. And so some have thought, since John Mark was probably the sole care provider for his mom, that he missed her, felt responsible for her, and left them to go care for his mom. Maybe that was the reason. Others have speculated that um, John Mark was so loyal to uh, Barnabas, to a fault, because he was a friend of Barnabas's, and that this clashed with Paul. 
In fact, you notice in this passage that the, the text, that Luke, the way he describes this group, that he calls them Paul and his companions, not Barnabas and Paul, or Barnabas and his companions, where previously it had been Barnabas who was kind of the lead man, but now it's all about Paul. And so with this shift of leadership in the group, maybe John Mark struggled with that a little bit as the leadership shifted. He maybe struggled with Paul's leadership style. Maybe they clashed personality-wise. He's like, I can't handle this guy. I need to go home to my mom. We don't know why John Mark left. We just know that he did. And that this turned into a real point of contention later on in Paul and Barnabas' relationship. Which, we're going to talk about this in Acts 15 when we see this in the story. But just as an observation for us here today, I think is important for us to think about. Because sometimes people will think in churches that are healthy, when God's at work, when God's doing stuff, that there's not going to be conflict. You ever thought that? Kind of measured health by how little conflict there is? <laughs> That's just not true. Even when God's at work, even when churches are extraordinarily healthy, there can still be conflict. In fact, we should expect conflict because wherever there are people, there is conflict. And we see that even with John Mark and Paul and Barnabas. We should expect conflict in our lives and even in our church as well. So, who wants to fight? Who wants to get into it this morning? Maybe we don't want to go down that road, but... uh, Conflict happens, even in churches. Verse 14 now. But Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to Antioch and Pisidia, which is a different Antioch. If you're tracking with the story of Paul and Barnabas here in their missionary journey, they've been to another Antioch before. This is a different one in Asia Minor, different area, not where they planted a church in Acts 13. On the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue for the services. They went to church, as was their regular practice, their routine, right? Every Saturday, likely going to church, going to the synagogue to worship. After the usual readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, where they would have read from the scriptures, but not necessarily taught from them as we do here, those in charge of the service sent them, Paul and Barnabas, this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement, if you want to bring a sermon, basically, come and give it. Want to preach? The pulpit is yours. Now, this right here is why I, as a pastor, rarely go to other churches when I'm on vacation. I'm afraid of being asked to give an impromptu sermon. It's never really happened, and I'm not so presumptuous to think that other people would invite me up. But sometimes you're like, oh man, what if they, you know, make an issue of, oh, the pastor, this pastor friend of mine is here. You kind of feel a little bit awkward. It's never happened, apart from being on a mission trip where I've been asked to give an impromptu sermon. But you kind of expect that. Uh, while on a mission trip. The closest thing to this, actually, was when I was asked to speak years ago at this Christian school, and they had asked me to speak on, they were working through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and they said, could you speak on the fruit of goodness? And so I I prepared a 10 or 15 minute talk on goodness, and as they were introducing me, I'm literally walking up to the front, they said that Pastor Jeff this morning was going to speak on the fruit of gentleness which is not the one that I had prepared a message on. And so for the next 10, 15 minutes, just kind of made it up. And uh, which, uh, if you, those of you who have worked in kids' ministry or whatever, you're a teacher, maybe you know that feeling. That was kind of a new feeling for me. That was the closest thing I got to having to do an impromptu sermon. But here in Acts 13, you can understand why these leaders would have wanted Paul and Barnabas to bring the message, right? They're known to be good speakers, Paul in particular. 
they were connected to the church in Jerusalem, kind of the, the mothership, and they were also trained in the Hebrew scriptures, which was rare in Asia Minor. And so it was kind of a big deal to have these two dudes, Paul and Barnabas, in the congregation. And so, of course, the leaders of that synagogue would want to hear from Paul and Barnabas instead of who, what, what, whatever other schmuck was up there talking. They wanted to hear from someone who knew what they were talking about. For me, it would kind of be like if, I don't know, Tim Keller. How many of you know who Tim Keller is? Good preacher. Imagine Tim Keller walked in this morning. I would not preach if Tim Keller walked in. I'd say, Tim, you're doing this here today. You're coming. Or Andy Stanley or John Orberg or whoever your preacher de jour is. If they walked into church this morning, I would gladly give them the pulpit saying, I feel like, you know, you probably are better at this <laughs> than I am. It's kind of what happened here in Acts 13. It reminds me, actually, that Braden and Carrie, Braden told me a story about how they were once leading, I hope you don't mind me saying this, I'm saying it anyway, they were leading worship at a church somewhere, not here at the gathering, I don't know, 10 years ago, when in the back, I guess, Carrie Underwood and Mike Fisher walked in. That's got to be a pretty eerie feeling. You'd be like, Carrie, you can take over. You come on up, sing how great thou art, or whatever it is that you do. Where's Vince Gill? Let's get him up here, too. We'll let you guys take over. It'd be a little intimidating, right, to have to lead worship in front of Carrie, but I'm sure that Braden and Carrie uh, did a good job. Now, I know for most of us in this room, as we think about this impromptu sermon in Acts 13, that most of us probably don't consider ourselves to be preachers. Maybe you have to speak, do some public speaking for work, have to present every now and again, but you're probably not considering yourself to be a preacher, I imagine. But nonetheless, I think that this raises a pretty important question or thought experiment for us to consider. Here's the question I want you to think about for a moment. If you had to give just one message, what would that message be? If you had to give one message, what would it be? If you were asked to share your faith somewhere publicly, what would you say? If you had to say something and you couldn't say no, it's like the floor is yours, you got, I don't know, five minutes, what are you going to say? Or maybe more to the point, if we're not thinking about public speaking, but maybe just in a conversation, if a friend asked you to share your faith with them, if they asked you why it is that you believe what you believe, what would you say? It's a difficult question to have to wrestle with, isn't it? Something I have to think about each week because I get up here and talk, but I'm not the only one who's been called by God to share the good news of Jesus with people. We've all been called to do that. We've all been given opportunities to share our faith with others. And so it's important to be prepared. I'm reminded here of Paul's words to Timothy, kind of his protege in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, where he calls Timothy to be prepared in and out of season. Like, always be ready to give a word, to say something about your faith, because you never know when you're going to have the opportunity. Well, here in Acts 13, Paul was clearly prepared, as he seemed to have a message in his back pocket ready to go, almost as if he was expecting it. And he preaches this impromptu sermon, which was actually quite incredible to see. We're going to look at that message now. Verse 16 says this. This is some of what Laura already read for us, but we'll look at it again. So Paul stood and lifted his hand to quiet them, which is such a power move, isn't it? Just like, quiet, everybody. I'm going to try that when you guys get rowdy on Sundays. Just raise my hand and see, see what happens lifted his hand to quiet them. 
And he started speaking. Men of Israel, he said, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. That's also a power move, isn't it? Just listen to me. <laughs> I don't know how he said it, but I hear him like, listen to me, you guys. Now notice Paul's audience here. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to two groups of people, isn't he? First of all, men of Israel. This is primary audience in that room. A Jewish audience, religious audience. But then also, he says, and you God-fearing Gentiles. People who were not Jewish but had some sort of faith, or at least were curious about faith, because Paul knew as a missionary that there's always going to be people listening in who don't share your faith, and he needed to acknowledge them as well, speak to them as well, which, as a side note, is how I typically uh, try to preach up here each and every Sunday. I try to speak to both Christian and non-Christians. I, I speak primarily to Christians because I believe that the role of preaching is to build up and strengthen the church, to strengthen Christians. But I preach in such a way, or try to anyway, that if a non-Christian or someone who's not familiar with our faith is listening in, that hopefully it can make sense to them as well. I think that's important for us, not just for us preachers, but for us Christians to think about when we're having conversations about faith. To use language that people understand. To be aware that there are people who don't share our faith listening in. And Christians are known for using language, we call it sometimes Christianese, that doesn't always make sense to people who don't share our faith. Right? Think about some of the phrases or words that Christians sometimes use. We talk about being washed in the blood. If you don't have any context for the faith, that's a creepy saying, isn't it? Washed in the blood? Like, no, thank you. What church do you go to? I don't know about that. We talk about um, having a hedge of protection sometimes around us, right? We pray for a hedge of protection. What does that even, what is that? A hedge of protection. This is a saying that Christians sometimes use. Or we talk about traveling mercies. We pray for traveling mercies as we drive. I don't see that in Scripture. Like, as they loaded up their horses and their wagons praying for traveling mercies. It doesn't exist in there. Even the word fellowship. Who uses the word fellowship other than Christians in J.R.R. Tolkien, in the Fellowship of the Ring? It's not really a word that regular people use in conversation, but sometimes as Christians, we just kind of say these sorts of phrases that if you don't have context for it, it doesn't really make sense. I think it's important for us as followers of Jesus to use language that hopefully makes sense to everybody, no matter their religious background, whether they're Christian or not, but to speak truth unapologetically all the same, which is what Paul does here in this passage in Acts 13. He speaks to the Jewish audience sitting there, but he uses language that everybody can understand. Look at what he says as he starts his sermon. He says, the God of this nation, of Israel, remember he's speaking primarily, right, to Jewish men in the room, he chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful arm, he led them out of their Slavery, and then he actually goes on in verses 17 through to 23 to summarize at a high level the story of Israel to his listeners, which we'll look at in just a moment. But just want you to pay attention to this. What's he doing here is he summarizes the story of Israel for his listeners who know this story very well. Well, in short, he's connecting their story, the story of Israel, to the story of Jesus. And he's helping his primarily Jewish audience to see how everything that happened in the Old Testament, ultimately it was all pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh. He summarizes their story in verse 17 by talking about the Exodus. 
and how God, by His grace, led His people out of slavery in Egypt. An incredible story. Verse 18, he talks about the desert and how God cared for Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Then in verse 19, he talks about the promised land and how God overthrew seven Canaanite nations to give their land to his people. Verse 20, he talks about the judges and how God gave Israel judges to help rule over the nation and give them law and order because it had kind of been like the wild, wild west. So he put these judges in place. And then in verse 21 and 22, he talks about the kings. And how even though God didn't want them to have a king, it wasn't his desire for the nation of Israel, God gave them a king when they asked for one. He gave them Saul as their first king. And then he gave them King David, a man after his own heart, despite his own sinfulness. Landing then in verses 23 to, and 25 to 25 on the story of Jesus, the promised Savior, the true king of Israel, God in the flesh, the one who everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards, as all Scripture does. All Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus himself said this in John 5, right? He said, all Scripture points to me. You read the Scripture looking for life, but you miss it if you don't find me in it, because all Scripture points to Jesus. It's so important for us to keep in mind as we read the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, because we can pick and choose Bible verses that kind of support our ideas, Sometimes bad ideas, politicians do this all the time, use uh, verses that sort of talk about power and, and revenge and things like this, taking it completely out of context, missing that the entire Bible exists to point us to Jesus. The written word exists to point us to the living word, which is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, when you take a step back, you know what I think Paul and his... Uh, Paul, he wanted his listeners to see and hear as he talked about how the scriptures pointed people to Jesus. Well, ultimately, I think he wanted them to see who the story of Israel was all about. And that despite what they may have thought in that moment, their story, their history, wasn't about Moses or Joshua or Saul or David or any other Old Testament hero or leader, but that it was all about God. And what God did and how God continued to pursue Israel, even when Israel continued to pursue other things other than God. It reaches its pinnacle, of course, in the coming of Jesus, God's pursuit of man in coming to earth. This was Paul's point here in telling the story of Israel, is that God was and is the main character of their story, not them. And he never stopped pursuing them with his grace, as we see no more clearly than in the person of Jesus. This idea, this truth, I think is true for us too, isn't it? We, we might not see it this way all the time. We might forget it. We might make it about other things. But at the end of the day, God is the main character in our stories too. We might not always see him and feel him. We might not understand what he's doing in our life. But make no mistake about it. We are not the main character of our own stories. God is. And in his sovereignty, he is at work within the subtext of our lives, pursuing us with his love and his grace, calling us to himself. Even as we pursue other things, he comes after us in his love, in his mercy, in his grace. That's what we see in the story of Israel. And when you stop to reflect about your own story, it's what we see in our stories too, isn't it? God's pursuit of us, despite our pursuit of other things. 
incredible. Paul goes on, and after connecting the story of Israel with the story of Jesus, he explains what all of this means for his listeners and for us as well. Look at what some of what he said, starting in verse 26. He says, Brothers, you sons of Abraham, fellow Jewish men, and also you God-fearing Gentiles, those who were pursuing a life of faith but weren't Jewish. Thus, if you're not Jewish, in the room. This message of salvation, Paul says, has been sent to us. This message of salvation, he says, has been sent. I love that language of the message of salvation. Do you know the church, I don't just mean the gathering, but the church of Jesus Christ has a message. We've been given a message by God to the world. And it's this. It's this message of salvation that Paul is speaking of here. So what exactly is that message? Well, Paul explains it for us by telling the story of Jesus. Look at what he says, starting in verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one that the prophets had spoken about. Even though the entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus, and it's so clear now as Paul lays it out for his listeners, people missed it. didn't realize that Jesus was the one who had been promised, the promised Messiah. And so... Verse 27, instead, they condemned him. These people, they condemned Jesus. And in doing so, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath, and that likely had been read that Sabbath as they gathered there in that very worship service. Verse 28, they found no legal reason to execute him because Jesus did nothing wrong. He lived a perfect, sinless life. There was no reason to execute him. But they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all that the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the cross where he had been crucified for the sins of the world, and they placed him in a tomb. Verse 30. But, Paul says, God raised him from the dead, conquering sin and death and evil once and for all, where sin and Satan and death had thought that they won by killing the Son of God. God said no. And he conquered sin and death. By raising Jesus from the dead. Verse 31, And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. And many of these witnesses were actually the leaders of the church. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. But notice, what, according to Paul here, is this message of salvation? That he talks about this core message that the church has been empowered to take into the world, the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. What is this message? He makes it really clear for us in this passage, doesn't he, as he tells the story of Jesus. It's this. It's the death and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross and the empty tomb. That's the message of the church. That's our message. It's not to go into all the world and to be a good person or to go into all the world and Make the world a better place, though we want to do that. It's not about being happy, healthy, or wealthy, as we hear some churches proclaim. No. The message we have to proclaim is about the grace of God, as seen no more clearly than on the cross and the empty tomb. That's our message. Where first of all, as we think of the cross, we think of 2 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul elsewhere, he says that he, Jesus, who knew no sin, right? He was perfect. He became sin for us. 
As Jesus hung on that cross, he absorbed into his own body as a sin sponge of sorts all of the world's sin and evil and racism and hatred and war and poverty and all the things that have gone wrong with the world. He absorbed it into himself as he hung on the cross. And then secondly, in the resurrection, the empty tomb, he then conquered what he absorbed into himself. He beat it. He beat sin and death and evil and racism and all those things that destroy our world, emptying it of its power in our lives as we live in alignment with him. It's the cross and the tomb, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the salvation, the message of salvation that has been entrusted to us, followers of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Christ. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no salvation, there is no freedom, there is no forgiveness, there is no message for the church. There's no, no point in us gathering here this morning. There's no hope for our future. We are just doomed. That is the message that we have that changes everything for us. Cross in the empty tomb. Verse 38. Brothers, listen, Paul says. We are here to proclaim, after he talked about the cross and the tomb, that through this man, Jesus, and his death and resurrection, that there is, he says, forgiveness for your sins. It makes it very personal to them, right? Like, it wasn't just this grand cosmic event that took place, but it's an event that changes our lives. There's forgiveness for your sins, he says. It makes it very personal. Did you know that you need forgiveness for your sin? You know that I need forgiveness for my sin? We do. We all need forgiveness. And I know that this part of the message of Jesus can be offensive because what we're saying when we say you need to be forgiven is that you've, you've done some things wrong in your life, that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's an offensive message in a world because a lot of people live believing that they're actually really good people. And by all external standards, they might be. They might be nice. They might help old ladies cross streets. They might give some money to different organizations when there's a need. They might be the kind of people who help people out when there's a need, do things for neighbors and all this kind of stuff, but they're actually, all of us, are fallen, broken, sinful people. Paul makes this clear elsewhere in Romans 3, verse 23. He says, all have sinned, not just the people we don't like. <laughs> all have sinned, which means you've fallen short. You've missed the mark of God's ideal. It's actually an archery term. The word sin is an archery term for just missing the, the bullseye. You're just off, even just a little bit. You know, if you follow the trajectory, off, being off just a little bit, you end up way off hundreds of yards down the road, right? All have sinned. All have missed the mark. All have fallen short. Or in other words, as we like to say, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. We've all sinned. We all need forgiveness. And you can't find that forgiveness anywhere else but in Jesus. We try. We don't always know how to articulate it, but we know something's wrong in us. We need to fix what's wrong in us, so we try to justify our lives in different ways. Try to find that forgiveness in different ways, don't we? By being successful in our work. By earning lots of money. 
by getting people to like us, by doing good works, being a good person. We try to make ourselves feel like we matter, like we've, we, we've done something about the things inside of us that we can't fix, but it doesn't work. It, it helps in the moment, maybe makes us feel better about ourselves, but long term, it doesn't change our sin problem. We need a Savior. We need forgiveness. And so how then can we experience that forgiveness that Paul talks about here? Well, he tells us in verse 39, he says, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, is made right in God's sight. You're forgiven, which is something that the law of Moses could not, never do. Something that following the rules, in other words, could never do. Being a good person could never do that. Doing the right things could never do that. You need to believe in Jesus. Paul says that's how you're forgiven. That's how you're made right. With God. Now, what does that mean? To believe in God. To believe in Jesus. Because in our culture today, a lot of people say they believe in God, right? I think more than half of our population still says, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. What does it mean, then, to believe in Jesus? Well, it's not just an intellectual thing. A lot of us intellectually believe that Jesus existed. It's more of a heart thing. It means two things in particular. First of all, to believe in Jesus is to confess, to admit that you can't save yourself, that you have a sin problem that you can't fix and you need a Savior. And by the way, this isn't just something that we ask non-Christians to do when they come to faith in Christ for the first time. This is something that we, who are followers of Jesus, need to do each and every day. We are dependent on the grace and the forgiveness of God each and every day. So we come before Jesus and we confess and admit our need for him, that we can't fix what's broken inside of ourselves on our own. That's what it is, first of all, to believe is to confess our sin and to admit, admit our need. And then secondly, it's to declare that Jesus is Lord of our lives. That's very different than just saying, I believe in Jesus. When you say, Jesus, you're Lord over my life, that means you're the boss. I'm entrusting my entire life to you. My, my, all my decisions run through the gauntlet of what, what is God's will for my life? What does Scripture say about this? What does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus in this situation? To say Jesus is Lord of our lives. It's to bend the knee to Jesus as our King and to say, I'm not King. You are now the King of my life, the Lord of my life. That's what it is to believe in Jesus. It's to confess our need of Him and to declare that Jesus is Lord of our lives. We won't read it, but after Paul finishes his sermon with a stark warning, by the way, in verses 40 to 41, to his listeners, telling them to be careful to embrace this message of salvation in Christ, lest they, like Israel, destroy themselves by living into their sin and wandering way, the people respond. In a pretty incredible way. Look at what Luke tells us in verse 42 and 43. It says, As Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue, the people begged them to speak about these things again the next week. It's the greatest compliment a guest preacher could ever get. It's to be invited back the next Sunday. Paul and Barnabas get the invite back next week. Verse 43. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And the two men urged them, listen to this, to continue to rely on the grace of God. I love that phrase, to continue to rely on the grace of God. 
You know, sometimes we think that this message of salvation, this message of God's grace is just for beginners, just for people who are new to faith, but it's not. The grace of God is what both saves us and sustains us. And without relying on the grace of God, you know what we do? You know what I do? I so easily fall back in to the cycle of guilt and shame. I just put it all on me to prove my worth, my value, to justify my existence. When I live outside of the grace of God, I end up living into a place of guilt and shame. Is there anyone else? Christians struggle with this just as much as non-Christians do. Why? It's because we, we forget about the grace of God. We don't rely on the grace of God in our daily lives. Paul says that's what all of Christian discipleship is, ultimately. It's learning to rely on the grace of God. Live your life dependent on the grace of God, Paul says. This was Paul's impromptu sermon with the message of salvation, the sermon that he had in his back pocket, ready to go. And a message, a truth, that changes everything for those who believe, who admit their need for Jesus and declare him as Lord of their lives. The question for us, I suppose, this morning as we look at this sermon, consider a sermon about a sermon. The question for us to consider is how will you, how will we respond to the grace of God in our lives today? How will you respond to God's grace? Will you reject it or resist it as ancient Israel did, going their own way, as Paul talks about here in this sermon? Or will you embrace it and rely on it, confessing our need for saving and declaring that Jesus is Lord over our lives? What will you do with the grace of God? Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast.